0: Very thankful for everybody. Being here today, today we are going to see a courageous follower of Christ. We're going to see what following Christ can cost us. Again, as our country and the world we live in becomes more and more anti-Christian, we're going to find ourselves facing some of the same things the early church faced. We need what they had. Courage. It may cost us our wealth, our health, our friendships, or even our lives. We need courage. When Joshua faced the enemies of God, as the people of God entered the promised land, God told Joshua, be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you. The same is true for all of us today. We need to be strong and and courageous, and know that the Lord our God is with us. We are going to face various temptations and attacks from the world and the enemy, Satan. We must be strong and courageous, knowing that the Lord our God is with us. Today we're going to see a courageous follower of Christ as he faces the enemies of God. We'll probably be covering this for the next couple weeks. I read these stories and I read the events of Stephen and I think to myself, I want to be just like this man. I want to look like him. I want to speak like him. I want to live like him. How about you guys? I want to reflect the glory of Christ. Acts 1.8 says this. In the summary of the book of Acts, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. We are in the initial spread of the gospel in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem, that first part. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem. The stage includes many opportunities for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed. The stage includes many great signs and wonders. It also includes the word of God being proclaimed from house to house and in the temple. It also includes a growing level of persecution. In Acts chapter 2 through 8, we see three main trials. The first trial is found back in chapter 4, verses 1 to 23. It included an interrogation of the apostles by the council a defense by the apostles, and a ban and a warning from the council to avoid speaking in the name of Jesus. And then the second trial, found in chapter 5, verses 17 to 40, you can see that. It includes an arrest, a divine release from jail by the angel, and yet another interrogation by the council, a sovereign intervention by one of the respected Pharisees, and then another ban on sharing the gospel and concludes with a flogging, beaten most likely 39 times with lashes. And then our passage today is the third trial. It's found in chapter 6, verse 8, all the way through chapter 8, verse 3. It includes a violent arrest, a corrupt interrogation, a remarkable defense. And it will end with Stephen being stoned to death in chapter 7, verse 60. Then persecution will break out in Jerusalem. With this persecution, the first stage of the spread of the gospel will end and the next stage will begin. So the gospel is given to Jerusalem up through chapter 8, verse 3. The emphasis is on Jerusalem. But then after that it will continue on. We see here what the gospel does. It divides. As we graciously proclaim the gospel, it is either embraced or rejected. And the clearer we get with the message, the clearer the line becomes. This is who Jesus, are you with him or not? The more we share the person and work of Jesus, the greater the pressure arises to make a decision concerning him. What are you going to do with the God of the Bible revealed in the Son, Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with Christ? People either embrace this truth in Him or they reject it. Either God is working and they repent and trust in Him and follow Him and obey Him. Or they turn and they say, I don't want this. And they begin to suppress the truth and unrighteousness again. In our culture, when people are confronted with their need of a savior, they often just ignore the truth, don't they? They say things like this: "Quote, what's true for you is true for you, but what's true for me, it's not true." What? But if we continue to proclaim the truth, they will get rude and tell us, "Keep our beliefs to ourselves." Isn't that true? Isn't that what happens? Especially if we stand on the exclusivity of faith in Jesus Christ alone. As soon as we say, he's the only way, that's when we get people irritated at us. Thankfully, when, we, when our message is re- rejected, it does not always end up in stoning like Stephen's case. But often it does end up in separation. Some of us have family members that have turned on us in light of the fact that we see the gospel as revealed in Jesus Christ. Some of us have relationships that are strained at work because we stand for Christ. These are facts, aren't they? The gospel divides. We're going to look at these early Christians with more affection and admiration as it cost us more and more as time goes along. Beloved, the gospel is divisive. However, we must be careful. We must not be divisive for self-righteous reasons. The gospel must be what divides. In other words, it is our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ is what must be the dividing point. Not our commitment to expose persons' sinful ways. That's important to get. Again, it must not be about us proclaiming that we are more holy than other people. It must be about our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. All too often, radical Christians are known for being more about what they are against than who they are for. Yet who we are for, Jesus Christ, causes us to kill sin, doesn't it? In our lives daily. All too often we think that it's our job to kill sin in other people's lives. That will create division. (laughs) But that is not the point. Why was Stephen persecuted? He was persecuted because he stood for Christ. I would argue that many of us are not persecuted because of our stand for Christ. It's often we are persecuted because of... Being holier than thou or self-righteous. We need to be careful of that, folks. In the case of the early church, the believers were not standing outside of the council meeting screaming at the Pharisees and high priests that they were sinners and needed to repent. (laughs) They were going from house to house to those who God was working in, in order to proclaim the truth. Yes, they were in the temple sharing Christ, but their focus was on teaching those who wanted to hear Christ proclaiming the glories and honors of Jesus is what got them in trouble. And when they asked and when they were asked to give a defense, they were ready. They were ready to talk about Jesus. Remember, every trial that we've seen so far, who has been the one that's the hero? Jesus. It's always been about him. The disciples of Jesus weren't picking fights with religious leaders. However, as the religious leaders saw that they were losing some of their flock to Jesus and his followers, they became angry. So the religious elites again went after those proclaiming the gospel. Again, the disciples were not seeking a fight, but they were seeking to live at peace with all men, while at the same time they were boldly proclaiming the gospel to everyone who would listen. There are some things in the early church... I do not believe we can replicate. Mainly because I do not believe the Lord is doing those things anymore. Because his revelation of him is complete in the scriptures. Things like signs and wonders. But there are many things that we can imitate in Stephen. In a lot of these guys. The apostles. We should imitate the early disciples in their character. How about that? We should imitate... They're in their houses from house to house discipleship. That's what we should imitate, correct? Discipleship relationships. We should imitate their evangelism, their desire to see people know Christ and be saved. We should imitate their commitment to the Word of God, as we saw last week, right? That's what we should imitate. And we should imitate their humble trust in the sovereign Lord. Those are the things we need to imitate. Does everybody understand? The early church was filled with courageous followers of Christ. I want to be a courageous follower of Christ too. How about you? We saw last week the word of God was spreading in Jerusalem. More and more people were embracing the truth of the gospel. And this effect was seen in even more of the priests embracing the truth. And becoming obedient followers. And we see the word of God kept spreading in verse 7. And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. With these conversions, the local synagogues were being turned upside down. Their leaders were embracing Jesus Christ. Now think about what that would be like. That would be somewhat... Like today, in a great revival sense, we start preaching the truth about who Jesus is, and all of a sudden, all these name-it-and-claim-it pastors come out and say, Wait a second! We've been teaching a false gospel! We need Jesus! Or how about all those secret sensitive churches? All of a sudden, those preachers come out and say, Wait! I've been telling you everything wrong! Jesus is your hope! It's not wealth, health, and popularity. Can you imagine what would happen? Can you imagine? It would set the world in chaos in America. Well, that's what's happening in Jerusalem. you got priests coming to obedience in Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. And they go back to their synagogues and they start speaking. What do you think is going to happen? People are going to start getting angry. If, if uh, one out of the four elders in the church all of a sudden say, wait, there's a problem. What do you think the other three elders are going to say? That guy needs to go. And then there's going to be splits everywhere, right? That's what's happening. He's dividing. Christ is saying, I'm the one, come with me or you're not going You have no hope in the kingdom. We're going to do a little character sketch of a man that did that. He stood up. We're going to see a new appointed leader take center stage. One of the Greek-speaking Jewish followers of Christ steps up and begins to reveal the gospel. Stephen, one of those servants appointed to help care for the widows, steps up and takes a spiritual leadership role. And we see when Stephen took his position of authority and began to speak the truth, he was targeted for persecution. We're going to do a little character sketch, like I said. As we do, we'll see both how a Christian should look and what a Christian should expect in this world. Let's look. Today we'll see five features of this courageous follower of Christ in his final hours on earth. Notice first Stephen's source. It's found in the beginning of church, verse eight, and then again at the end of our cha- of our section in verse fifteen, and Stephen, full of grace and power, and then continuing in verse fifteen, and fixing their gaze on Stephen, all who were sitting in the council saw Stephen's face like the face of an angel. What we see here is the source of Stephen's success, and his power, and his grace. It's God. God is all over Stephen. As a matter of fact, we know this from Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Notice it says he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was already described this way. This was one of the reasons why he was picked, why he was appointed. Now, here we see in our passage in 6 8, it says that he was full of grace and power. A man full of faith here in verse 5 means that Stephen was. A man controlled by what he believed. Now think about that. I want you to write that down. That is so important. Full of faith. What's that mean? Full of faith. It means that he was controlled by what he believed. It moved him. In Stephen's case, it was his faith in the gospel. It was faith in Jesus Christ that made him different. It made him powerful. It was his faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord that caused him to boldly stand up and proclaim Christ, no matter what the circumstances are. Again, as we've said countless times from this pulpit, what we believe about God determines how we live for Him. What we know about Christ determines how obedient we are to Him. What we trust in Him determines how we live for Him. Also, we see that Stephen was full of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Again, this does not mean Stephen had more of the Holy Spirit than the other believers. It does not mean he was a full cup of the Holy Spirit, and the others were a half a cup of the Spirit. That's crazy. You don't get a little bit more of the Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit means... Stephen was completely controlled by the Spirit. He was under the direction of the Spirit. The Spirit was living and active in in Stephen. He was filled with the Spirit, and His Word and His deeds revealed it. The Spirit was controlling Stephen. And as we see in our passage today, we see he was full of grace and power. This means Stephen was literally... Under the control and the overwhelming influence of God's unmerited favor. God's grace moved him. Everything he did came from God's unmerited favor. That's a wild thought. That's what I want. How about you guys? I want God's grace to be the thing that drives me to do everything I do. His unmerited favor working in my life. That's what I want. He was also controlled by the supernatural power of God. We hear a lot about grace, but is God's grace controlling you? That's the question we all need to be asking. Listen, we can give the doctrines of grace backwards and forwards, but is the grace of God living in you? Is it active in you? Is God's unmerited favor being demonstrated in your lives? What does that look like, ladies and gentlemen? It looks like people that are compassionate towards one another. We'll talk about it in a second. We'll see what grace looks like unfolded in the life of a believer. Stephen was just another man, a human, just like us in this room. But the characteristics that marked him apart were God's overwhelming influence in his life. God was working in him. Stephen was being controlled by God. As we will see, the Lord's influence was obviously by what, we'll see it by what Stephen did and says. By the way, we all should want this too. We need God's supernatural influence every minute of the day. Do you understand that? You need Him. I need Him. We see this grace and power on display in Stephen in our passage, don't we? But notice the last effect of the Lord at the end of the passage. This one's a strange one. I have to admit, I'm still shaking my head on it a little bit. All who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. What in the world does that mean? This probably means Stephen's face looked a little different than normal. Now, does this mean Stephen literally had the appearance somewhat like Moses when he came down off the mountain? Was he glowing? Uh, I don't think so. I think, more likely, I think there is a holy confidence upon the man of God. Made, and it made him look different. He, for lack of a better term, he was completely trusting in the sovereign grace and power of God. And it demonstrates itself with a confidence. Now... I was talking to one of the brothers in this, one of the brothers at Gary's on campus just the other night. Listen, you don't need self confidence. Nobody in here needs any self confidence. What you need is confidence in God. And if you have that confidence in God, you will look different than this world. I mean, you will literally look like somebody that is not ashamed of the gospel, ready to proclaim it boldly. You look like one of God's holy messengers, almost literally like an angel, because we're trusting in the sovereign hand of God, knowing that He's good. I think all of this pl- flows together. If you're full, if you're full of faith, and that is you're trusting in the Savior, and God's Holy Spirit is controlling you, and you're full of grace, God's unmerited favor, and His empowering work in your life, you're going to look different. Some people might look at you and say, man, you're cocky. They might actually say that. They might think, man, you're awfully confident. And you should immediately say, there is absolutely no confidence in me. I'm confident in the God of the Bible. You should in your heart not have confidence because of your... Because of your own self righteousness, that's not what should be your confidence. Your confidence should be in the Lord, and I think that looks different, doesn't it? I I, I hear this often when speaking about uh, John MacArthur, and I love the man. I, I I wish all of you could meet him after a service. I wish you could shake his hand, because. He's just a normal guy, but when he gets up in the pulpit, he preaches with amazing confidence. He's like, "This is what it says, and this is what it means, and you better listen, because thus says the Lord." And people say, "You're a proud man." You know, he gets people will accuse him of that. No, I'm not. I just, it's the Bible, and that's what I want. How about you guys? I just want to trust in the Word of God. And stand boldly and say, here it is. If you all notice, I'm a little different in the pulpit than I am when you're just talking to me normally. Why? Because it's the word of God. I've got confidence that it's good. You better listen. The church had prayed for this kind of boldness, didn't they? Look at Acts 4. Remember, 29 to 30, it says they, they prayed, And now, Lord, take note of these their threats and grant that your bond slaves, your servants, your, your slaves, may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God was answering this prayer again in Stephen. Beloved, the source of everything good we do is God. He gives unmerited favor and power and boldness and courage and joy and self-control. This is why Paul asked the Ephesians to pray for him this way. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 19 he said to them, he said, And pray on my behalf that the utterance utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That's what he's praying for. Paul prays for it. And then notice that Paul prays for the church this way. He literally says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every heaven, every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. He prays for this. He prays for their boldness. He prays for their power. He prays for them to understand God. He prays for them to submit to God. He prays for them. And friends, not only do do we need God's grace and power to thrive, we cannot survive without it. Jesus said in the upper room before His death, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We need God to be in control of us, don't we? Again, is God's supernatural influence applicable to us today? Absolutely. I would argue God's influence is just as available today as it was in Stephen's day. God hasn't changed. There are only a few differences in how God manifests his power and grace today. You said, Mike said, a few differences. Yeah, only a few differences. No, we don't do signs and wonders. But those are a side note anyway, ultimately. I would argue there are more manifestations of God's power today that most would think a cessationist like me would never say. There are. There are manifestations of God's Spirit working right now and available to all of us. But I do know there are several ways. Let's see. Here, I'm going to name a few. You ready? These are Spirit-produced graces. And power. Ready? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Oh, yeah, we know those. We know those fruits of the Spirit. How about some more? Mortification of sin. Walking in holiness. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. Giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be controlled by the Spirit. Not returning revile for revile, speaking with wisdom and grace, forgiving those who offend you, turning the other cheek, praying for your enemies. Ladies and gentlemen, those don't come from you naturally. Those are Spirit-produced works of God. Man, you never hear the name-it-and-claim-it people talking about those much, though, do they? Patience, grace, gentleness, kindness, mortification of sin. How about John Owen writes a whole book on it? Y'all ought to read it too. And ultimately, what does he do? He produces worshipers. Worshipers. Did you know God's all about himself? (gasps) Yes, he is. Why? Because God is God. And for him to be less than about himself would be idolatry. God would never exalt anything but himself. And so what do you think the spirit of God that indwells every believer is trying to get every believer to do? Worship God. It makes sense, doesn't it? All of these are demonstrations of God's supernatural influence. These don't happen in unbelievers, folks. You say, well, I've seen somebody have joy before. Or I've seen an unbeliever be patient. If an unbeliever does these, they're doing them with impure motives and not truly for the one true God. Their focus isn't for glorifying God. It's for glorifying themselves. The heart of an unbeliever does not honor God or give thanks. How do I know that? Because the Bible says it. Romans 1, right? One eighteen to 24. It's very clear. Instead, it exchanges the God that made them for a God made up in their own mind. And they worship that false God. As a matter of fact, they will do acts of kindness so that their false God will like them. Now think about that. They make up a God in their mind and then they do good work so that their false God will like them. That's scary, isn't it? So when you look at the world and you say, well, why did that person do an act of kindness? Well, their conscience helps them, but reality is most of the time they're serving their false god. Whether it's themselves as an atheist or false religions like the Muslims. But Stephen was different. The fruit of the Spirit was on display in Stephen. And God's grace and power were in control of him. Beloved, these were the characteristics on display in Stephen. And many of the displays of the Spirit in Stephen are still available to us. And we should be showing them, right? Again, as we humbly seek to know the Lord Jesus more, we will be controlled more by the Spirit. So seek Christ. Show us Christ, right? Show us Christ. The more we know Him, the more we will serve Him. Notice, second though, Stephen's miracles it says Stephen was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now this is going to be a little bit more detailed. Get ready, listen closely. <laughs> Sorry, but it's the way it is. I want to make this clear once more. The early church did not do sleight-of-hand magic tricks. They did real miracles. Supernatural miracles. Signs and wonders. And they were great. Contrary to the way that the liberals may say, they were literally acts that broke the laws of science often. It does not appear that when the apostles laid their hands upon people, God revealed himself the same way all the time. But he was showing something. It's very important. Look at how when the apostles lay their hands on people, it appears that God begins to reveal himself through others too in miracles. In verse 6, it says this about Stephen and the other seven. It says, And they these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. Now, folks, this is... This is going to be a little bit difficult, and you're going to need to listen real closely. And as we make our way through Acts, you're going to hear this over and over. But it appears that people actually become believers, and then the apostles will lay their hands on them, and then they speak in tongues. And again, there has to be a reason. Why is this happening? I believe ultimately it's because it's trying to point to the apostles and the message of the apostles. I think this is very important. Now, some of y'all aren't going to agree with me. I'm sorry. It's okay. You can keep seeking and looking and and searching this. But I don't believe this is some mystical touch either. As much as God was showing through the miracles of Stephen that the authority of the apostles and their supernatural abilities could also be placed on these men. In a sense, Stephen did miracles just as authoritative laying on the hands had indicated in Acts 6. Again, when Stephen did this miracle, it revealed two things. One, God was at work in Stephen. And second, it had happened because God had established this authority through the apostles laying their hands on him. Okay, so both are there. And in context, this is what Luke wants you to know. He says it, and you will see throughout the book of Acts that when the apostles lay their hands on something, something happens. The emphasis is on who? The apostles. What they did, they laid their hands. you got to trace it back to that. The reason why I say that is, is because I don't have that power. I have not been given that authority. And nobody in here has the uh, apostle status. So we can't lay hands on somebody and all of a sudden they be able to do that. Does that make sense? Why do I know this? Well, because in Ephesians it's very clear that the church was established based on the foundation of the apostles and prophets in Christ Jesus Being the cornerstone. Foundations laid. Apostles are no longer. So they can't lay their hands on people. And therefore there aren't going to be these miraculous things. Does that make sense? Does everybody understand that? Some of y'all are like, I don't agree. That's okay. Y'all are welcome to talk to me after and ask me and send me those big long emails that I'll try to get to one day. Again, remember, this is why the seven were given authorities in the first place to do this. Why? So that the apostles could keep doing their job. So that the apostles could continue to preach the word and proclaim the message and focus on that. So in a sense, they do this so that their message and their ministry could continue. By the way, there does not appear to be a place where supernatural empowerment for signs and wonders is two levels deep in the Bible. I can't find it. In other words, you don't have somebody do it, and then there's another miracle from somebody else. Do you understand? It only comes from the apostles. If any of you have questions, you can ask me after, but I don't want to get bogged down in this. Does this make sense? Let's keep going. One thing's for sure, Stephen did real miracles, okay? And they weren't, contrary to the liberals, things that were just supernatural or, you know, sleight of hand or... uh, just allusions to the mind. These broke the laws of science. And that's why they're called signs and wonders. You know, when, G- when Peter walked on the water, he didn't kind of change, the you know, he didn't step on a stone. Do you understand? It, he walked on water. Can you do that? No. That's a miracle. That's a sign or a wonder. No, that's different. But again, the bigger deal is this. Someone who did signs and wonders does not automatically lead to conversion. This is the important point I want you to get from the passage. And I want you to get this. Listen closely. I'm constantly amazed in the Bible at how miracles are often preludes to persecution. It is totally the contrary to what we would think. Again, this is the opposite of what the atheist says. What's the atheist say to us? Show me a miracle and I will believe. I've even heard, uh, what's the guy, science guy. Yeah, the science guy. He said, if you can make me levitate, wasn't that what he said in the thing? You can make the pulpit levitate or the lectern levitate, then I will believe. Show me a miracle and I'll believe. And yet we know from scripture the opposite is true. What do you mean? Show me a miracle and then I'm going to kill you. What? Show me a miracle and I'm going to really hate you. I'm going to persecute you. I'm going to beat you. Boy, that goes contrary to everything the world tells you in this naturalistic world, doesn't it? But that's what we see. In this case, Stephen does, a, does signs and wonders and they say, kill that guy. Got to get rid of him. Next time you are confronted by the skeptic who says to you, do a miracle, you ought to tell him this, if God did give me the ability to do a miracle before you, then you would probably want to kill me. (laughs) What are they going to say? Why do you say that? Well, because the miracle will show even more that you have a sin problem and you need a savior and you need to repent and trust in Christ alone. That's a wild thought. Nobody thinks like this. This isn't the way the world thinks, is it? When they say, give me a miracle, what are they doing? They're suppressing trillions, billions of stars out there. Of general revelation. Give me a break. No more proof. By the way, if Stephen had God doing supernatural things through him, this is the question that came to me. Why didn't Stephen make the stones miss him? Or why didn't he heal himself after being stoned? I mean, you get hit. Oh, that one didn't hurt. No, it's healed. Boom. Why didn't he do that? The answer is... God knew he would be more glorified in Stephen's death than his rescue. Do you understand? Oh, folks... I believe, I am completely convinced, God is more glorified that miracles aren't happening today and we are trusting him. It shows much more. That's what, that's what Jesus told Thomas. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. God knows it. God is greatly glorified when you have a man that's a wicked, wretched sinner that turns from his sin and trusts in Christ, and he's up here preaching the gospel. And guess what I saw? And you know what? This is funny. Off um, on a tangent. I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know what happens? You know when I got called into ministry, folks? Do you know the last big battle, that I, the struggle I had with the Lord? I'll never forget sitting out on the car saying, God, if you just show me. Just show me something. A sign. Something. Just show me a sign. Then I will know. Going in the ministry is the way to go. I just, just, just show me, just a glimpse, little thing. And it came to my mind, and God, I don't think, was verbally, audibly talking to me, but it was the Spirit working through my inner spirit. And I don't know how that is. But ultimately it was this. I've given the word. I've given you an amazing glimpse of me in the word. Isn't that enough? The word of God's enough. That's all I need. I think we need that, don't we? We need that kind of faith. We need that kind of trust. We need to understand that God revealed himself in this. And that's it. So did he talk to me? No, I don't think he talked to me. But I do think his supernatural providence worked in my heart in some amazing way. To have me to understand that this was it. I was like, Lord, I want to preach this. I want to teach this. I want to share this. That's when I went into the ministry. Beloved, notice also Stephen's wisdom. But some men rose up and argued with Stephen. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit which he was speaking. <clears throat> here we see another effect of God's supernatural presence in Stephen's life. When confronted by religious hypocrites, he is able to answer all of their questions. We see they were not able to deal with the wisdom and the indwelling spirit that was guiding Stephen. There's a sense here where the enemy is no match for a man of God who is surrendered to the Lord's grace and authority, oh, please mark that down. The enemy is no match for a man of God that submitted to the Lord God and the Spirit's work in his life. When we try to argue with somebody and our hearts are prideful and seeking to win an argument for our glorification, we will not demonstrate biblical wisdom. We will all actually be all about us. This is one of those things that I cannot stress enough. And I teach this in uh, evangelism and apologetics class. And you can't teach it. You can't really get it. It's a hard issue. Do you understand when you go to talk or evangelize or talk with somebody, if you're trying to win an argument, you lose? If you're trying to be the winner, you lose. But if you're there and surrender to the Lord and your eyes are on Christ and trusting him, it's not about winning the argument. It's about exalting Christ. And God's wisdom is on display. That's what happened with Stephen. He was full of grace and power. He was controlled by God's unmerited favor and power. And what happened? They had no answer. They could not cope with his wisdom. Why do you teach that in evangelism class well it's not five easy points it's a heart surrendered to christ and when it's not you lose period beloved take this to take this to heart listen you are not going to argue with your your relatives your friends your co-workers and make them believe i'm sorry it's not going to happen it's a waste of time. And you're probably gonna look, you're gonna look prideful in the process. I would argue that one of the reasons why they came down to do this was probably to try to defame Stephen's character. That's what the enemy's trying to do. Be very careful of your motives when you're proclaiming the gospel, when you're trying to give a defense. If your defense is about winning, you winning, you lose. If your defense is about exalting Christ and being humble and gracious in the process and trusting God to be the sovereign one to change them, then you they can't do anything with you. Because that's what the Spirit does. Daniel understood this, didn't he? It is God who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Where does wisdom come from? God. Now, one of the books that just kills me, I don't know about you guys, is Proverbs. How many of you, Proverbs, that book slays me. I mean, I love that book. However, one of the things that just drives me crazy about that book is I know who the author is. Solomon. And I'm fairly sure I know when he wrote it. Earlier in his ministry. Or as, as a king. And he says, give me now wisdom. He says this to God. Knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can rule this great people of yours? And what did God do? He gave him Wisdom. But one of the things that absolutely blows my mind on this is that almost everything that he says in Proverbs, he breaks. And most of it on the sexual immorality. This is another case of you can't just teach it. You need some supernatural application from the Spirit. You need to not just have it here; you need to have it here, and it needs to come out of here, and it can only come out of here. If the heart's right, you will only live it if you're surrendered to Christ and you're humbly seeking Him. Man, this is it in James three. James three thirteen who among you is wise and understanding. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Wisdom that produces gentleness. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly and natural and demonic. In other words, look, you can have a group of knowledge and you can speak a certain way, but if you're if it comes from an arrogant heart, it's literally demonic. It's from Satan, it's not from God. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, Full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Wow, that's good, isn't it? That's something for every single one of us in the room to just memorize. That's good. It implies when you speak and your heart's not right, it's demonic. It's not from God. But if you speak and your heart's right, humble, it will actually be lived out in a different way too. You must all ask this question. We must all ask this question. Do we speak with wisdom from God or do we speak from wisdom from the devil? Is it about self-exaltation or Christ-exaltation? Those are great questions, aren't they? Your character will demonstrate whether or not it's from Satan or God. Your method of argumentation will, too. Notice Stephen's antagonist. But some men (coughs) from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen. And we see these different guys and then verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, quote, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses. Notice the number of enemies of Stephen grows as the events unfold. First, there were these men from the synagogue of the freedmen. Most likely they were Jews who lived in Jerusalem who had returned previously from foreign countries over the years. These were men who were educated but no match for the spirit of God at work in this man. They were of two different parts of North Africa and then two different parts of Asia Minor. Second, these wicked men then secretly induced Other wicked men to cause an uproar among the people. And it worked, didn't it? And then third, they put forward even more wicked men to give a false witness against Stephen. Again, what we see here is there are numerous people ready and willing to take down the man of God. Numerous people. The the, the enemy, ladies and gentlemen, has a world of wicked people ready to draw from at any moment he wants to take us down. Do you understand that? Unfortunately, sometimes I feel like even (laughs) our own families can be the ones. Can't they? Notice the antagonists come with three different attacks. There's a frontal attack, seeking to argue and show a lack of wisdom or possibly expose his pride. Second, a behind-the-scenes attack seeking to cause anger from the crowds to rise up against stephen in other words you got gossip going on and somebody coming back here saying come on do you know about this guy to cause them to come up against stephen and then third there's false witnesses in the trial seeking to twist the truth of what stephen had said just to make it so he would die or be condemned listen folks listen closely the enemy wants us to fall Or he wants you dead. Those are the two things he wants. He wants you to fall or he wants you you dead. Now, I want you to think about this. Maybe one of the reasons why the enemy doesn't have to persecute in our country is because we're falling all the time. (laughs) He can shame the name of Christ with all the immorality that goes on in the church. Isn't that not true? What do I need to persecute them for? They're just fine at destroying the name of Christ. Beloved, grab a hold of the scriptures. Grab a hold of Christ. Get your eyes on him. Humble your hearts to him. As 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith. What was he full of? Full of faith. Knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I love how the apostles speak in the epistles about what was going on in their lives as they were going through all this stuff. That's all they're doing. Do you understand that? You go to the epistles and you see this is what you do. This is what it looks like. This is the application of how and what it'll look like. Ladies and gentlemen, we will face many different attacks, either seeking to provoke our pride or cause us to sin, or we will be falsely accused, or we will be conspired against. Our hope is in one place, God. That's it. God can and will defend His own. The way we guarantee that God will take care of us is how? How? How do we guarantee God will take care of us? Answer real simple. The verse right before. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There you go. Everybody in here, if you think you're something, you're not. You're about to fall. If you think you're something, you're right on the edge of a disaster. Disaster. And then finally we see Stephen's charge. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place in the law. I can't wait until next week. As we unfold this, what you're going to see is that Stephen takes the law and says, Look, let me show you. You want me to preach from the Old Testament? I'll give you an amazing sermon. And that's what he does. He takes the law and he says, You know what the law does? It slays you. (laughs) It says, you know what the law does? It shows every one of you are guilty, just like your fathers who killed the prophets. You want the law? I'll give you the law. The law says you need a savior because you are wicked sinners. What do they do? They cut him off before he gets to the gospel and he dies. But you know the coolest thing is, is he still gives the gospel, because as he dies, he says, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." And I see the Lord standing at the right hand of God. He still gives the gospel, even as they're killing him. And one of the ways he gives the gospel is by laying down his life for them. Isn't that glorious? And what's really wild is one of those Pharisees standing by was Saul. And then God turns around and writes much of the New Testament with that man's influence. What a glorious God we serve. What a glorious God. They say he didn't know the law and blaspheme Moses. In fact, he was exalting the law and God. They were the ones blaspheming Moses. Because Moses spoke of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for our time together. Lord, we see that we are needy people. Lord, we see that we are prone to pride. And our enemy, the devil, is prowling around seeking whom he can devour. God, we know that our only hope is in you. And so we right now, we humble ourselves. We call out to you, please rescue us from the enemy. Please lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Please, Father, help us to exalt you and honor you. We look to you now, Lord. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.